I suppose one of the joys of what we call an open society is the fact that there's a reverence, the fact there's questioning. It always has made what is known as a democracy different from totalitarian societies or monarchies. And perhaps the journalistic phenomenon of our day to day is a magazine called Ramparts, published in San Francisco, yet has made national news continuously. I think uh, everyone when listening to the program now knows about this magazine, Ramparts, uh, particularly the recent expose of the CIA and on campuses. Ed Keating is, I guess, Edward Keating, the publisher. You may recall some time ago, he was, I guess, he wrote a book called The Scandal of Silence, a layman's view of the church and the developments. That was, that was about a year or so ago, Ed. About a year and a half, Studs. You know, time has a way of flying by, particularly for a man like you who's getting older all the time. And, Always. And I'm just reaching maturity, so yes, <laughs> you have to slow down and I have to speed up to catch, with, catch up with you. I'm thinking of the magazine Ramparts itself that yeah. is now known throughout the country. Uh, and I suppose what it's known for is uh, the word is expose, yet it's far more than that. There's an American tradition that's long been buried about certain magazines, turn of the century, one called McClure's Magazine. Yeah. Lincoln Steffens wrote for Ida Tarbell, Ray Stannard Baker. Rampart's really part of a tradition, isn't it? Yes, we're, I think we, it's safe to say, I'm, I hope we can say this, that Rampart's uh, belongs to the school of muckraking. Now, modern Americans uh, are put off by the, the, the word muckraker because they don't understand the, the, the period of American journalism when it was alive. There's nothing that better characterizes journalism in America today than the word pablum. They just don't want to get involved. They don't want to make a commitment. They don't want to stick their necks out. They believe in mendacity, equivocation, and uh, mediocrity. And I think that there is a great need for a magazine like Ramparts which incidentally, uh, Studs, just doesn't go into exposés. For example, you have a copy of the current issue in front of you, and I'm going to grab it, and I'll tell you why I'm grabbing it. I've been on the road for two weeks, and I haven't even seen the issue yet. But we have the exposé of the CIA and the National Student Association, but also in the issue we have a, an article by Warren Hinkle, our executive editor, on a, a social hist history of the hippies, which is an extremely important social phenomenon in San Francisco. And then and, there's... Um, might I say, just everywhere in America. Yeah, today. but they seem to have their focal yeah. point out there. And this is why it's so exciting, publishing out of, out of San Francisco. Uh, our office is like Grand Central Station. And uh, every kind of person in the world enters that office. Everything from the hippies, the beats, to priests, to, to uh, you name it. And then we have uh, the death of an American, uh, the death of a president, Berkeley style. This deals with the firing of Clark Kerr. And then we have something on Sartre. Uh, Stephen Schneck has a piece on the Hells Angels, and then there's a ex very, very important article in the Passamaquoddy Indians up in Maine. So uh, we, we try to enter not only the, the uh, uh, political sphere but the, and the social area on a, on a mass level, but also on the individual. You yes. see, this is the thing I'm concerned about in society today, is that we live in a mass, complex society where the individual is pretty much lost sight of. And, and what happens as a result of that is he develops this sense of impotence and anonymity, and there's, there's no joy. I think we come to the key word here, impotence and no joy. I mean, uh, everyone knows, I mean, all of us are aware, listeners, myself, Ed Keating, everyone is aware that 
the more institutionalized, the more organized we become, the individual says, what can I do? I leave it with the man upstairs. Yes. Even the man upstairs may speak with Texas rather than biblical cadence. The man upstairs knows better. Yes. And you're saying that you, the person, Ed Keating, or the person listening, is very important. It's the most important thing in the world. Um, you see, when you deal in mass things or mass entities, you're, you're dealing, in a sense, with abstractions. For example, um, I can't say that I uh, like the Vietnamese people and therefore I want to uh, end the war so that they can have peace and justice in their country. Just as I can't say that I love American people, uh, as if to distinguish them from somebody else. What uh, I am concerned with is that individual child in uh, South Vietnam who lives in a remote village who is being napalmed to death. I remember uh, about two weeks ago, a man came into my home, and this was when the, just after the NSA thing had broken. And this is, by, should point out for those who may not know, NSA, National Student Association, mm -hmm. students throughout the world are full of life and vigor and mm -hmm. vitality and questioning, and Ramparts just exposed, of course, the CIA influence on NSA. So anyway, this, this man was in my home on, on something, I don't know, and uh, he said, well, you certainly have uh, been in the news lately. And I said, yes, I suppose so. And I said, but I'm, I'm and he made some reference to the fact, he said, you know, I'm very confused about Vietnam. And uh, my wife was standing there. And uh, we have a new son who's uh, six months old today, incidentally. And uh, she was Congratulations. Thank you. She was, she was holding Big John in her arms. And I, I explained to this man, I said, look, you mustn't think of this war in Vietnam as involving Asians or coloreds or gooks or anything like that or communists. I said, every time we drop a napalm on a child in Vietnam, and then I pointed to my son and I said, we're dropping napalm on my son over here. And I said, until we can understand this, we're never going to be able to put the, the situation of Vietnam in its proper perspective. And I remember a couple of weeks, oh, about a month ago, they had what they call a bee-in in the uh, be in be in, in in San Francisco in the park on I think it was a Saturday or Sunday there are about 20,000 people there and there there are two little little stories about it that I think are so revealing of, of what can be done with, uh, in, in American society they had about 20,000 people there and of course it was a weekend and a lot of small children and somebody at the uh, from the main uh, stand was aware of the fact that children were floating all over the place and he announced over the PA system, he said, now look at you parents, uh, if your child gets lost, don't worry, somebody will love him. Huh. And the other one was, uh, was on the edge of the crowd, was this cop. And uh, one of the women near him asked him to go into the crowd for something. It was extremely minor, unimportant. And he said, no. And she said, well, why not? He said, because I know that there are some kids smoking marijuana in there, and I don't want to know about it. That's marvelous. Here's a very human being, a very yes. human man, the cop, in this instance. Yeah, know. well, this, this whole yeah. business, incidentally, of Ellis... Who doesn't want to know about this. What about, you were saying yeah. about Ellis. This, this matter of, of, of uh, uh, marijuana and um, LSD really, I think, reveals the great uh, paradox that exists in this country. For example, ordinary cigarettes are harmful but legal. Alcohol is also harmful but legal. Marijuana is harmless and illegal, and LSD is harmless and illegal. Yeah. 
And this, I, I think, really reveals uh, well, what's just, wrong. Just to, just to set the record straight for some who may not, uh, there's controversy about LSD and the effect it has on different individuals. Well, now, Timothy Leary was on. Yes. And j j no, just as a parenthetical. Mm. Well, I, uh, yes, I've, I've talked uh, quite a bit with uh, people who've been studying LSD for a long time. When I say that LSD is harmless, uh, I, I say it in this sense, that under proper supervision and uh, proper emotional preparation for a trip, uh, mo the overwhelming majority of the times you're going to have a good trip. Uh, if you're a weekender and stuff like that, and under certain circumstances it can be harmful to you, uh, this is a matter of use versus abuse. And I've told my own children that uh, if they ever decide that they want to take a trip, uh, please do it under supervision uh, by people who know about it, because this is about the this most serious thing about LSD is that we don't know enough about it. And I and I since I could not stop my children uh, from taking a trip, I would like them to take a trip with a good escort. I think what's most important about this conversation I'm having with Edward Keating, who's the publisher of Ramparts, is the fact that we're talking now man to man, individual to individual, and this is really key, I think, to Ramparts itself talking about something else too. There's a humor to this magazine. It's known for its uh, remarkable exposés, I use this word now, quote unquote, in the old American muckraking in a very marvelous sense tradition, and yet humor and joy. Uh, all of us, I think everyone listening right now is, is aware of the fact that there's a joylessness, seems to overwhelm us. We look for laughter, we look for a certain kind of life, and I seem to find this in, <laughs> this is nature of a plug. In, in this magazine itself. Well, it comes back, back to you, Ed Keating. You, a devout Catholic, in fact, a converted Catholic. Yes, yes. Because Scandal of Silence deals with that. Mm. You see things happening in every aspect of our society, don't you? Yes, uh, it, it is in everything. It's in uh, the, the relationships between individuals and blocks of individuals. I find the most important uh, relationship that we have to explore and resolve is the relationship that an individual has with himself. Uh, I lecture quite a bit and people are uh, various schools of thought. One of them is to uh, change the system, change the institutions. This is why I, I cannot uh, have common cause with socialists or communists or for that matter even Republicans and Democrats really for this reason that they're trying to change institutions, and I think this is a study in futility, that what is important is the, the, the you might say, the, the change of the individual, because I live in two societies. I live within the Catholic Church, which is a dictatorship. I know that uh, a lot of people are going to uh, take umbrage over that, but let's not kid ourselves. Uh, I use the term dictatorship and advisedly, but if those of uh, your audience who are concerned, I could say benevolent. Uh, particularly if we could go back to uh, the period of Pope John. On the other hand, I live in a democracy, the United States, and I find myself able to live with a minimum of stress in both societies. So therefore, the, the structure is unimportant. It's a question of who is sort of in charge. When John Twenty-Third was the Pope, uh, I felt a great warmth and uh, conviviality within the Catholic Church. I do not feel that under Pope Paul. And also when uh, John Kennedy was president, there was a certain atmosphere, a certain élan in the country, 
There was a feeling of uh, that we had a, a future to this country and the new frontier, which was a cliche, but nevertheless, there was a, an esprit there. But under Johnson, we have a total reverse of this process. And yet something has happened. We stick for the church for a moment, uh, of which you are part. There's Thomas Merton, Gethsemane Abbey in Kentucky. There's Daniel Berrigan here in Chicago, a number of young, marvelous clergymen, elderly, who name them now. They're quite wonderful. You feel something is popping within frameworks that is very exciting yes, involving there, individuals. There is definitely uh, a mounting revolution within the Roman Catholic Church, but it is not coming from the top. It's coming from the bottom. It's coming from the Berrigan brothers and Thomas Merton and uh, among the clergy and, and others, uh, John Cofield here in uh, Chicago. And Father Dubay. And Dubay, and these various people, also among a portion of the laity, like John Howard Griffin and, and others that I know. But I don't think that we should uh, think that we've reached the millennium. We haven't. Uh, I'm sort of sitting back uh, with uh, one eye cocked on the clock and the other eye cocked on, on poor uh, Pope Paul when I... I see his hang-up over this matter of birth control. And he would give anything in the world if, if Pope John had not brought that terrible subject up, because Paul is philosophically and theologically still in the 19th century, and he cannot conceive of, of uh, uh, broadening the, the principles of family planning to include such things as artificial birth control. And uh, yet, uh, the, the old saying is, a bell once told can never be untold. And or a window, a window open can never be closed again. If you, you try know. hard enough, you can close it. And I'm not sure that uh, Paul isn't trying to close it. Uh, the, but the, you see, the thing is that there is so much momentum from the bottom uh, about birth control and also a great momentum from the bottom dealing with the celibate priesthood and uh, other things. Because as, as Ed Keating devout Catholic is talking, a publisher of Ramparts magazine, I'm thinking of something else. I merely use the church as a metaphor for our society and for our world. The world is opening up and the individual now must find himself in this incredible time in which we live. Yes, uh, I, I'm glad you mentioned that, Studs, because um, some people have asked, the a lot of people have asked the question really as to what's happened to ramparts? We seem to once have been uh, more involved with the church than we are now. My answer to them is very simple, that uh, the church in a way is a microcosm of all of society. And what is true about the problems of the church are true about the, the overall society in which we live. And uh, so we've begun to uh, pay much more attention to the, the, you might say, some of the universal questions that uh, implicate all of us, and not just uh, a segment of society. Because well, as you're saying, that I'm thinking of also of two men who died within uh, a month of each other, three weeks of each other, A.J. Musty and Henry Luce. Yes. Uh, I spring this on you right now because uh, it occurs to me there's a crazy metaphor involved. A.J. Musty was 82 years old. We're shocked when A.J. Musty died. When a man 82 years old dies, we say, he lives a full life, but A.J. Musty was so young. He was a totally young man. Um, I'm, I was, I, you know, so often I still refer to him in the present tense. Um, A.J. and I were associated in this uh, spring mobilization committee against the war in Vietnam, and he was chairman of the committee, and I was one of the vice chairmen. And I was also, and I still am, the, the, the uh, West Coast chairman. And I was out at Carmel a couple of weeks ago at a conference, 
and I received a phone call, and it was A.J. Musty. And uh, it, was, it was the day before he died. And uh, he had prepared the call for the mobilization. And uh, I remember about a week later, I was one of the participants in the memorial uh, service for him. So the, the thrust of my contribution was just to read this call, which I labeled his last will and testament. And I was in Carmel and talking to him, and I remember thinking, good Lord, this, this man's 82, and how strong his voice yes. is. And the next day he was dead. But what a wonderful way to go. He had just uh, come back from Hanoi, bringing back again another opportunity for peace in Vietnam. He was fully active in the mobilization. He was a revered man. He had a tremendous charismatic quality that would uh, unite such disparate groups as uh, SANE and the uh, uh, Socialist Workers Party, for example, or the Youth Against War and Fascism and the American Friends Service Committee. And uh, I, I think the thing that typifies A.J. more than anything else was his uh, unlimited faith in man. He recognized the presence of evil. He was not naive in that sense. He recognized it, but he also recognized the enormous potential for good. And I've never seen him lose his temper. I've never seen him be rude to anyone or, or uh, sharp to them. There was always this effort on his part to be always an agent of reconciliation. It's as though he knew what was bugging his antagonist. It wasn't a question of being a moralist or saying, you are evil and I am good. He never had the, you never got the impression from A.J. that he was holier than thou. I'm not so sure that we can say that about uh, Henry Luz. And I don't mean to put him down. Um, I remember my reaction when I, I saw the, the headline that he was dead. And conflicting thoughts went through my mind. Uh, his magazine, Time, uh, has really been quite vicious to Ramparts. But I also know that... I wasn't that, aware of that. Oh, oh yes, that? very, uh, in, incredibly so. Is it, is it ever occurred to you that it's logical, it has to be, that here is something quite slick and smooth? Well, it may and, be, but I'd, I'd prefer to get back to Mr. Luce. you are the Lu challenger. Yeah, Go ahead. I'd, I'd prefer to get back to Mr. Luce himself. Uh, I'd never met the man. I, I know stories about him. Some refer to him as the ambassador from Formosa and things like that, the China lobby. But... As I said, there were conflicting feelings when I read about his death, and uh, one of them, in a sense, was, well, uh, we've got one less man on our back now. But then the thought occurred to me, this is a stupid statement for me to make, because without a doubt, uh, Mr. Luce proceeded uh, on the basis of what he felt was right, just as I proceed on the basis of what I think is right. And I, I think that too many of us don't do that. Uh, if somebody disagrees with us, we immediately go ad hominem and try to suspect the most terrible motives. But I cannot believe that, that uh, basically rational people proceed from ill motives or from a sense of evil or anything like that, that they are concerned with what they're doing. And that's why I, I would uh, endorse, for example, the right and defend with every fiber of my being the right of uh, Mr. Luce to publish the sort of thing that he publishes, just as I defend the right of, of uh, William Buckley to publish the, the National Review, because I don't agree with him, and he doesn't agree with me, but I insist on the right of everybody to be heard. And the great tragedy of our country today is that few people are willing to stand up and be counted. There's something very fascinating about this. You find uh, William Buckley's young disciples, young Americans for freedom, 
are objecting and disturbed and hurt by many things, and so are the young students for democratic society. Each one does it perhaps from a different way of looking at it, but both are disturbed by a complacency, by a flaccidity in our society. Mm. And Ramparts is always attacking this, it seems to me, a certain kind of nebulousness, as though the person is a digit. You know. Yes, well, of course, this is uh, largely the result of, of the development over the last couple of decades of this mass culture, complex culture, where the individual feels impotent, resigned, but at the same time, they're not too upset because they live in a world of in unparalleled affluence and security and uh, respectability and the sense that, speaking nationally, the United States is so powerful, it's the most powerful nation in the world, and this always amuses me. Why are we so paranoid about uh, communism? Uh, we have the, the greatest system in the world, we have the power, the prestige, and so on. We shouldn't worry. But these, these young people and people on the right exhibit a remarkable uh, joylessness and a lack of a sense of humor, as if the world is a very terrifying place. I don't find it terrifying, even though I'm appalled at what we're doing in Vietnam. I'm appalled at the racial situation in this country. And, and yet I cannot lose uh, my sense of, 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 of joy and excitement uh, of, of living in this society because I don't feel impotent to begin with. And Edward I feel Keating. that I, I can do something. Well, uh, two, two aspects come uh, right now as Edward Keating is talking, joylessness and sense of helplessness. Uh, joylessness, uh, the thing about ramparts that I like, if I may just put a plug in here, I like, aside from the fact that it opens eyes to many of the, uh, many of the uh, venalities that we must recognize as uh, human beings do about, about themselves and about our society. But the lack of joy, there is affluence. Uh, we're not forgetting the deep, deep, more than pockets of poverty that, that Mike Harrington pointed out. Oh, yes, in America. No, no. But joylessness mm. and there's humor. Humor, the lack of humor is what always, I know, fascinates you. Well, of course, a sense of humor is a sign of sanity. and. Uh, I think that when we come across a person who doesn't have a sense of humor, uh, we, we should uh, worry for him. But you see, a sense of humor is not something wherein uh, the joke is on you. The real sense of humor is when one can have the joke on oneself and recognize one's own foibles, one's own humanity and, and, and fallibility. And I, of course, have this happen quite often uh, with, with the my children. I remember the other night I called home. My, it was my daughter's 11th birthday. My 13-year-old answered the phone. He was a real uh, character. And uh, I heard him put down the phone and yell out to Lissa, my 11-year-old, hey, Lissa, it's the old man on the phone, you know? Yeah. And this is great. And he has, a, he has a musical group, a rock group. They're four 13-year-old boys. And um, I had nothing to do with the selection of the name of their group, but they're called the Affluent Society. <laughs> and, and they play to junior high schools and private parties and things like that and have a marvelous time. Well, as you're talking right now, we come to uh, an interesting point. Let's think of joy uh, for a moment. We think of America, the frontier aspect of our society when it first was formed. First the East, then Andrew Jackson, and then uh, uh, the Midwest and uh, the people with mud boots came into the White House. But there's kind of an improvisational aspect to our country. And I think improvisation, improvisation is almost the word I think of. I think of this in the marvelous, and I think of jazz, mm. of ramparts, improvisation. 
We're living in a time of tremendous change, you know, one way or the other. We've split the atom, right? Mm -hmm. We can destroy mankind. At the same time, nuclear energy has been discovered. Mm -hmm. and but so, it always shows the, the two paths that, that, that man can take. Uh, I often refer to it as uh, our creative power and our destructive power. And I'm afraid that uh, the, the pendulum is swinging and has been swinging for a long time in the direction of intensified uh, destructive power and not enough of the creative. And I think that the, the, like the hippies out in San Francisco and hippies throughout the country. Oh, the, that, that, if I may just uh, say this, the, the current issue of Ramparts magazine has one called A Social History of the Hippies. But talk about yeah. the hippies. Well, they, uh, they're an extraordinary uh, group of, of young people. There's, a, there's an organiz a group, I should say, out in San Francisco called The Diggers. And what they do is they collect money and, they, uh, and then they buy food with it or they, they get food from various places and then they go to a street corner in the Haight-Asbury district and give the food away. Anybody who comes by who's hungry, they just give the food away. There's a great sense of spontaneity in this sort of thing, and this is something that we've got to have, because a uh, sense of humor, joy, is a very spontaneous thing. It's, it can never be contrived. And I always uh, would like to refer to this idea of the use of the word love. Too many Americans become embarrassed when you use the word love. Uh, too few husbands can look at uh, their wives and say, I love you, without feeling a certain degree of embarrassment, as if one didn't talk about these things, that they're almost, um, I won't say sissified, but uh, they, they contradict the rugged frontier man who had to go out and plow the South 40 uh, every day, this sort of thing, so that he, he finds it difficult to be spontaneous, to be uh, vulnerable, uh, to, to open his arms, uh, both literally and, and figuratively speaking, and embrace another human being or embrace the whole world. The, the, the sadness in this situation lies in the fact that if he were to open his arms that way and make himself vulnerable and accept and, and embrace, he'd find it impossible to be hurt by what, what he's doing. Of course, it's A.J. Musty, isn't it? Of course it, it was A.J. He was never scared of anything, and as a result of which he accepted everyone as a person. Yes, uh, I've never met Thomas Merton. He and I have corresponded quite a bit, and it took John Griffin to uh, give me the final insight into Tom when he said that Tom is so busy loving you that he doesn't have time to judge you. Yeah. There's Thomas Merton, who was, uh, at least at, to my disadvantage, taken a vow of silence in the Gethsemane Abbey. Yes, he may Kentucky. have taken a vow of silence uh, verbally, but he yeah. certainly does a great no. deal of writing. And of course, by the way, the first uh, uh, work of Thomas Merton I saw, I was a little slow catching on, was in Ramparts, was a, leather, a letter to Northern white. No, no, it was uh, um, um, uh, black revolution letters to a to a white liberal. That right, that right. Uh, which we published, uh, and uh, I was very proud of that. It's appeared all over the world and it's been translated into it many languages. It was a Christmas issue of Ramparts. In '63, yes, '63, yes. and in four years, much has happened to this magazine, and now. Uh, perhaps we could point out, this is a hopeful sign, there are two streams at work, obviously, you point out to the increasing joylessness and the thin-lippedness. At the same time, among the young, the, a minority, but uh, what Newfield calls prophetic minority, you yeah. know, something's popping, isn't it? It really is, uh, but I don't want to uh, uh, lead people astray. Uh, this revolution of social values on the left is still a small minority. But I think it's a growing one, I think it's a significant one, and it's one that gives people hope for the future. 
You see, the, the, the young people of this country, particularly the children of fairly affluent parents, people who don't have to worry about uh, going hungry or anything, uh, they, they, they've been inundated with affluence and they, they don't like it because they see the price that has to be paid. They see us existing on the, uh, the eve of destruction, if I can use the title of that marvelous song. They see the bourgeois values as being meaningless, of being so terribly hypocritical. To give you one illustration of the hypocrisy of, of, of bourgeois values, which stem from the Victorian era, is the, is the matter of language. Uh, there are certain uh, Anglo-Saxon words, both four-letter and longer, that one just simply doesn't use because they are obscene. I don't have that uh, feeling as far as my own children are concerned. Um, I don't care what words they use. I'm more concerned with the thought behind it. However, there are certain words that I will read the riot act to my children about that they simply cannot use in describing another person, and that is to use such expressions as, as spaz or uh, an uh, R, uh, R, MR, mental retarded, you know, and stuff like that. To me, those are obscene words. They are, they are so objectionable that my flesh just creeps, and I'm happy to say that they don't use those words So we anymore. come to this matter, perhaps because, I mean, there's a group that came through Chicago recently, San Francisco Meme Troop, were quite marvelous oh, yes. and wonderful, yeah. and basically it was involved redefinition of obscenity. Uh, we always think of obscenity as something involving sex, man and woman in the boudoir, whereas these kids and uh, Rampart seems to say obscenity is man demeaning man. Yes, uh, several else. years ago, Howard, Reverend Howard Moody uh, wrote an article for Christianity in, in, in Crisis, and the title of it was Toward a New Definition of Obscenity, and uh, he said that as far as he was concerned, uh, the four-letter Anglo-Saxon words were not obscene. What is obscene is that which demeans and dehumanizes another human being. And he said that in his mind, uh, this was during the uh, uh, Selma business, that um, the most obscene word in the English language was the word nigger flowing from the mouth of a, of a bull Connor. And he is right. And so there, that's why spaz and uh, MR and things like that, to me, are dehumanizing words, whereas the others aren't. I find it very difficult to see much difference uh, between the polite expression of somebody saying, oh, shucks, yeah. and what would be yeah. considered offensive on the air, you know. Because it's interesting, because, you know, Gore Vidal was trying to say this in his play, The Best Man. Uh, the best man, the immoral man in this uh, play was a certain a guy who went to church every Sunday, loved his wife, Occasionally. And was venal, occasionally, and uh, the, the 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 immoral man. I mean, or the the hero of the play was someone who had frailties and human frailties, who, who who thought life could be better. Vidal was trying to say this in the best man, which is a good commercial play and had some a marvelous theme to it. May or may not have succeeded, but basically this is ramp. Come back to ramparts itself. Aside from the marvelous insights it offers into our society and ourselves, uh, joy. Uh, you recently were in a program in Texas, and, and, and this Texas disc jockey oh, says, yes. what yes. makes people laugh? Would that, you mind telling yeah, that was, that was a that was a marvelous thing. Uh, he and I cut a tape, and then when the tape was finished, the main part of it, he suddenly asked me, uh, what makes you laugh? And so I, I gave him some of my views, and then I found out from him later that 
Um, he had uh, done this with uh, all types of radicals, uh, from Sheldon of the Klan, George Lincoln Rockwell of the American Nazi Party, as well as men like Stokely Carmichael and people of our persuasion. And he, he discovered that the farther you move to the right on the spectrum, the less and less sense of humor there is. I remember what he said about Sheldon when he asked him, and Sheldon's answer was, there's no time for being funny in the world today. Too many people are laughing, they're not taking it seriously. He was a very dour and, and glum man. And the farther you go to the left, the, the greater uh, sense of humor that you do find. And yet, possibly there too, you will find the joylessness too. You will. I found see, this is the point. Yes, a number of, of really dedicated people to the cause of peace that are impossible to, to be with for more than ten minutes because, uh, first of all, they, they, they seem to be obsessed with it. They can't talk about anything but the, the what I call the, the movement gossip, you know, about the various atrocity tales and who saw whom and who did what and all this sort of thing. And uh, they have no sense of joy themselves. But I think that the, 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 there's one button in all of this time, you know, we're in the age of buttons now, uh, that to me uh, symbolizes everything we're talking about, everything that seems to be dividing this country, and it is the button that says, make love, not war. Oh. I think that this, is the, this says everything, and I'm, I'm so pleased that last year, it was my daughter's last year in the convent, and she wore, the last semester, she wore this button, make love, not war, and I'm proud to say that the nuns never said a word. Well, of course, some of her classmates accused her of being a communist and everything like that. Well, let's come to this, if we may, for a moment, since this is a key. You see, your daughter in the convent, uh, Edward Keating is a, a devout Catholic, I was about to say, a Catholic devout. Uh, we come, the magazine itself, Ramparts, originally was a Catholic-oriented magazine. Uh, possibly yes, still is. Well, it, it's, it's very hard to describe what a Catholic magazine, so many of them, uh, the obvious ones, uh, refer all things to Rome and they, they translate uh, modern affairs into how it applies to the Roman Catholic Church. I would prefer to think of Ramparts today as being uh, Catholic with a lowercase c and uh, let it go at that. As a broad, all-encompassing. Yeah, well, we proceed from the Judeo-Christian uh, concept of man and society. And, uh, there's, uh, I think uh, a lot of people would discover that at times there's great outrage in Ramparts. Well, we feel this outrage at the, uh, the things that uh, some people do to other people, and particularly in terms of war and peace and, and uh, racial justice in this country. Because as you're talking right now, I think of some of the uh, writers Ramparts has discovered, not that discovered John Howard Griffin, but made him more known to uh, other parts of the country. Uh, John Howard Griffin, perhaps, who was a remarkable man, Catholic. Uh, he has physical troubles, great many physical troubles, yet this guy is uh, incredible. And Ramparts had scattered shadows, excerpt from his book about what is blindness, you know. Mm -hmm. John had a problem. He met this beggar, this clochard in Paris, and he suddenly discovered another human. Yeah, who was also blind, yes. It was an extraordinary document and very, very moving. As a matter of fact, we published it the first time in about the third issue we put out. And then about six months or a year ago, we republished the thing so that more people could uh, read what John had to say. But yes, this is something that, that we're, we're interested in. But as you, as you talk about John Howard Griffin, I think of another name comes to my mind, a Ramparts contributor and writer, El Eldridge Cleaver. Yes, well, Eldridge is, um, is one of the 
Let me put it this way, that if Ramparts never did anything else, it freed Eldridge Cleaver from prison. Here's a young man, Negro, who's about 30, 31 now, who's in for a very serious offense, and uh, I was privileged to, if you want to use the term, discover him about two years ago. And uh, critics like uh, Maxwell Geismar, Norman Mailer, and John Griffin, and lots of other people consider him one of the great literary discoveries of the of the year, and he's a completely self-educated man who has done the, the extraordinary feat of coming to terms with himself. And I don't use this term very often, but he's one of the few beautiful people I've ever met. And uh, we were able to get him paroled last November. And uh, I've talked to him a number of times about the adjustments that he had to make coming out of prison after being in, in there for almost 12 years. This is years. very funny as you're saying this because uh, in the same issue of Ramparts I'm looking at, uh, the, the March, this is the March issue. Yes. Is it not? Uh, it's the uh, Associates of Hippies. There's a piece here by H. Stewart Hughes of Massachusetts, the grandson of Charles Evans Hughes, and H. Stewart's a remarkable man, on Sartre. And Sartre had a great deal to do with the, with the freeing of Janae. Mm. In a way, there's a similarity here, yes, you know, yes, to well, uh, Ramparts and Ed Keating and, and, and Cleaver. We're honored. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's such little things that he had to he had adjust to, such as opening a door for a woman, or ordering a meal, or making decisions, or crossing the street. And the extraordinary thing about Eldridge is I visited him uh, in the various prisons he was in. And they're such anti-human environments. And he came out a very, very human man. And as you're talking right now, kidding, I again, I look at another, another article in the magazine, Passamaquoddy Indians, you touched upon this earlier. Yes. So we, we've hit different aspects of our country, of those considered outcasts who are very much in as far as being humans are concerned, yet the Indians too, you know. Uh, you, this is sort of an end gag with you, the story by Welsh and Passamaquoddy. Yes, Indians. well, David had written this article. David about, Welsh. David Welsh had written this article about, I think, about a year and a half ago, and it was flawed. And uh, we we kept uh, keeping him off on the thing and saying, "Well, it's not quite ready, you know, David. We've got another article in, and so we won't be able to run it this time." So it became a, an, an in joke in the office. And then about a month ago, David uh, went to uh, Southeast Asia. Uh, on assignment, and while he was gone, we finally made the decision to, to run the piece. And I wanted to send him a cable right away so that he would know that finally his piece on the Passamaquoddy Indians was being run, but the others decided no, because we all wanted to be able to look him right in the eye and watch the expression on his face when after a year and a half we finally published it. As we're having this very casual talk with Ebert Keating, publisher of Ramparts, the magazine that now has a circulation of close to 200,000. About 150,000, 155,000 now. The source of publication is San Francisco, yet it's national. Uh, this must have a tremendous impact on our country today. Again, it's almost a throwback uh, to early American muckraking in the marvelous sense when Lincoln Steffens wrote, Ida Tarbell wrote, uh, for McClure's magazine. And yet we live in a different age now. The nu it's the nuclear age, mm. and yet it seems to be part of a, an early American tradition that has been so long neglected. Yes, I I, I, I would say that that's true. I sometimes feel I, I've been trying for five years to really d describe ramparts to people. I've been unsuccessful, except to maybe give some hints as to what we're all about. 
Sometimes I refer to Ramparts as a, uh, an ad hoc magazine, that when we find a situation that is disturbing to us, uh, we go into it, regardless of the consequences. Another way of dis defining Ramparts is to sort of say it's like the little boy who said that the emperor has no clothes on. Well, we're not just interested in saying he has no clothes on. We want him to put the clothes on because if he doesn't, he's going to catch pneumonia. And you we're say, concerned with Ad hoc magazine, the word always has attracted me, and I love the word because it means improvisation too. It's mm. of the moment. That's why I like jazz. And you're saying the time we live in today is so fluid too, isn't it? Uh, that the two streams at work in our society, perhaps in the world. Well, to a sense, Studs, but in another way, we could say that American society today is so terribly structured and so predictable. Uh, like every season, we come out with a new set of automobiles, but they're so predictable. The television programs are so predictable. The situation in uh, race relations now, for those who are knowledgeable, is so predictable. So is the, the war in Vietnam. And one's career in business is so predictable. If one behaves oneself, one's going to get uh, periodic promotions and greater and greater security and, and incidentally more and more tied to the company. So that man has apparently in our society very few significant decisions to make. What we're trying to do is to get people to make significant decisions. We don't want people to read ramparts and then uh, continue living as they have in the past. We want them to become activists. You're talking now about the individual, the person yes, saying the reader. that, you know, there's an old uh, Walt Whitman comment, uh, phrase, a line from one of his poems I love so much. Myself, I sing, a single, separate individual, immense in passion, pulse, and power. He's saying, new ramparts, in a sense, are saying the individual indeed can have this at a time when it seems to be the individual is, is The individual is the most important thing in society, the most important entity in society, and he's being lost sight of in our complex mass culture. I know Edward Keating, who's the publisher of Ramparts, has to catch a plane because of his involvements and the marvelous involvements with life and the world we should live. So the last, perhaps the last question, and you go on, go on at length about this as much as you can. You, how you came, the last time we saw you, you uh, Ed Keating wrote a book called Scandal of Silence, uh, a layman's view of the church. He's a man who himself is affluent, if I may say that. And yet you had to do something. Uh, to you had to find some meaning for yourself in, in the world, didn't you? Yes. I suppose the best way to describe it is to uh, take off on your word affluent. Uh, once upon a time, when I started Ramparts, it could be said that I was affluent, uh, and rather affluent. And, but I'm not anymore, and uh, I've never been so happy in my life. <laughs> uh, You're free. <laughs> I'm free, yes. I think this is the best way to describe it. Uh, I think, uh, I've forgotten the name of the, the, the philosopher who, in describing the relationship between a man and his possessions, says that in the final analysis, the possessions own the man and not the other way around. And if one has some money, one is so afraid that somebody's going to take it away from them. Or if, if one has a reputation, for example, that that can be taken away. If one has respectability, that can be taken away. But you see, when you lose all of these things, uh, why, you have nothing that anyone can take away from you, and that's one hang-up that you can escape from. And I think the important thing is, is simply to be oneself and not be so afraid. This is my concern about the people on, on, the, on the radical right. They, they seem to exhibit such fear and hostility and anxiety over something being taken away from them. 
And they must understand that the only thing meaningful that could be taken away from them is themselves, if they become alienated from themselves. And I would say that this probably describes American society better than anything else, is the self of alienation, the sense of alienation from oneself. Uh, and this, this, this affects all of, of society. We take the family situation, the husband and wife. How much does the husband really love the wife, and how much does she love him? And how much are they really using each other, uh, sometimes as a sex object for the attainment of something else, or the woman is merely someone who prepares the meals or supplies children. And then when we have children, uh, do we really seek their fulfillment or do we seek our own fulfillment through them regardless of the price that they have to pay? I remember one of the saddest things I ever heard was in, in Chicago, believe it or not, when the man said that his, his daughter wanted to go to Michigan State and he wanted her to go to Radcliffe and he ended up by saying, I must uh, be aware of my position in, in the community. So he was thinking of himself in the matter of the selection of the college for his daughter. And then this holds true in terms of our neighbors, our business associates, our religious associates, and particularly those who are not co-religionists. We seem to uh, lose sight of their humanity and their, you might say, their divine origins as, as children of God, so that uh, we're able to put up these labels that separate us one from the other. But again, I go back to the individual, his own concept of himself and the, the difficulty he has uh, looking at himself in the mirror when he shaves in the morning. That he, is, um, he, is, he has this morbid guilt and this fear of, of the loss of everything. And for what? It's meaningless. Of course, as Ed, Edward Keating's talking now, he used the word labels there too. Labels, the fear, the, the, the word on the can. And you're saying that each individual is wholly different. At the same time, that which binds us together is a sort of common humanity. And, and if we could find this without the labels. Yes. Uh, uh, it's uh, obviously the magazine Ramparts is anti-cliché. This is perhaps the best thing I can say about it. Uh, in, in a brief, in a phrase, anti-cliché. Yes, I, I, as you, you know, as you've uh, been talking with me, Studs, I, I've, I've noticed something. I've been done in the Southwest and the West uh, about the last 10 days. And the difference between our conversation and the conversations that I've had with people on radio and television down there is extraordinary. They proceed on the basis that Ramparts is infamous, uh, that somehow it is almost the, the, the tool of the devil. And one of the things that they were, uh, after the, our expose of the CIA involvement with the National Student Association, they became suddenly very curious about our financing. And I know what the basis of their questions were. They were guilty of, of the, what in psychology is known as projection. Since we had exposed the, the infiltration and, and the conduiting of money from the CIA to the NSA, they immediately assumed that we were sort of guilty of the same thing. They were very anxious to know about the financing. So I would always make the statement, well, I can assure you from the beginning, that we are not financed uh, by the CIA, and uh, we're not financed. I can just say Ed Keating has money. <laughs> had we have had money. we have and we have other <laughs> quite a few other investors in the magazine now, and um, and then I would say we're not uh, financed by the CIA, and we're not financed by the Communist Party, nor the Catholic Church, nor the Ford Foundation. It so happens that there are a group of people, uh, not only in the Bay Area, but across the country, who believe in the same sort of things that we believe in. And so uh, they have invested in the magazine, not as an act of charity or anything like that, but, but, 
Uh, they believe in the future of the magazine, and they hope that in time they're going to make money off of it. Isn't it marvelous if, if you can make money off of, off of doing something good? <laughs> it's beautiful. Of course, it comes back again to the question of finding out who you are, at least finding meaning in life and joy. You come back to this question of joy, and I suppose it's a, it's a lively magazine, quite obviously. You know, Ed, uh, I know the man who you respected so very much, and I do, and all who've met him did, A.J. Musty, who died at 82, a young man. Perhaps we could end, because you have to catch this plane, and again, with other involvements, involving the individual man and life. A.J. Musty's story, the one he told, he got from Anatole Rappaport, Ann Arbor, Michigan, about here and there, mm -hmm. that would be a kind of a good one. And this may be the Rampart story. There were two kids named Here and There, lived in a small town, and here was always gathering material goods. He just cared nothing about anybody else. There was always seeking and curious about what was beyond the horizon. And they grew up. And here became a miser, gathered all kinds of money, became very wealthy. There was a teacher always telling the kids in his class to look beyond, always beyond. Both died. Nobody showed up at here's funeral. Nobody was there. Every, the whole village came to theirs funeral. There was a monument, and below the epitaph, he was beloved here because he was always there. That would describe A.J. to a T, but uh, some people uh, don't live on that level. Therefore, I, I, maybe these people would live on the level of the story about A.J.'s own life. He was a lifelong pacifist, gentle and so on. The great crisis came in his life when during World War II, his 17-year-old son asked him for permission to enlist in the military. And without any reproaches, without any comments or anything like that, A.J. signed the enlistment papers so that his son could go to war and kill and be killed. Never said a word. This is the kind of a man he was. This is the kind of man we should all be. It was his son's life, and he had determined it. So come back again, I suppose. This, you, you'd call this the credo of your magazine, Ramparts, I suppose. I don't but think so. I don't think that we could ever transcend to the heights that an A.J. Musty transcended to. We, we, we slug along in the muck and the offal of society. He did, too, but his head was always so high. Sometimes I think we don't keep our head as high as we should. Yeah, what a surface, though. Here it is, before I say goodbye now to Edward Keating, publisher of Ramparts Magazine. It's a monthly, it's 75 cents an issue. You can subscribe, uh, subscribe by a vital statistic. Uh, where, how? Well, you can always, always, always uh, write into 301 Broadway, San Francisco, and, uh, and get a subscription. And I suppose, at least my own impression is that it represents something that is so wholly American, archetypally American, and so rare, Ramparts Magazine, the editor, Edward Keating, on his way. And I say, uh, good luck. Well, it's good to see you again, Studs. When I'm in Chicago, we'll, we'll have a drink together.